Good morning, Grace Bible Church. Nice to see all of you. Come on in. <clears throat> we're going to, uh, if you were here yesterday, your, your brains are overflowing with good information. And so we're going to keep that going today. We're going to do something pretty light today, the doctrine of justification. <laughs> we'll see if we can get through kind of a good overview. This is module four, session nine. For anybody who's listening, module four, session nine. This is our sixth uh, lecture in soteriology, the doctrine of justification. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to uh, we're going to hit the ground running. So we'll get our get our wheels moving here. So let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we come to uh, this day, the centerpiece of our salvation, that we have been justified by the death of Christ, justified by the resurrection of Christ. It is a once for all justification that before you we stand righteous in your eyes. And so we are excited about this doctrine. It is high and lofty. It creates worship in us, Lord. And I pray that would be the effect, the ultimate effect, not just head knowledge, but that you would transform us into worshipers, those that are in awe of the fact that you would take wretched sinners like us and turn us into those who are worshipers of Christ. We pray that this would be uplifting to all who hear. We pray that it would be a great reminder of the gospel to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here we go. You ready? Rev your engines. The importance of the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is really the pivotal doctrine in the area of soteriology. It is what sets us apart as Reformed. It's what uh, addresses the all-important issue of how a holy and righteous and just God can create righteous people out of unholy people. How is that possible? Those in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, they often view justification really as the single cardinal doctrine of Christianity. Obviously, we're not discounting the deity of Christ and other important things, but it, this is the issue upon which the, doc, the, the gospel either stands or falls. And this issue right here is the key difference between uh, Protestants and Catholics. This is what makes salvation possible. And this is the key issue, and I'll show you at the very end, a quote from uh, the Roman Catholic Catechism, or their canon rather, that demonstrates that Roman Catholicism is heresy. It absolutely is heresy because it denies uh, the doctrine of justification. This is the key point of disagreement between Protestants and Roman Catholics. We have a lot in common with Catholics. Uh, we both believe the Trinity. Uh, we both believe in one singular God. We both believe in the church, although there's different forms of that. We both believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We both believe in, in eternity, in an afterlife. We both believe that there is a hell. The key difference is the Roman Catholics will get you to hell, Protestant doctrine of justification will get you to heaven that's a pretty key difference so therefore uh, that's why the reformers broke away i want to just do a brief historical summary of the doctrine of justification because um, it, it hasn't always been settled in other words uh, the church has struggled with this uh, to settle into uh, what we now have as really a very solid doctrine of justification. It's not that they didn't know, it's just that there was uh, disagreement. So just very quickly, and I don't know if this is useful to you, but, but just to understand the history, the pre-Augustinian tradition says that justification wasn't a theological issue. 
it just was not a not something that was well defined yet and there's a good reason for this the first 200 years of the church of jesus christ was not spent in a lot of theological discussion it was mostly spent surviving it was mostly spent spreading the gospel and, and frankly the doctrine of justification didn't become a big deal until people started refuting it uh, i'll give you a good example we have a phrase today, uh, Dr. Scott used it yesterday, called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Egalitarianism says that uh, as far as roles and distinctions, men and women are equal. They're not distinct. They're, they're the same. Complementarianism says that men and women have unique roles, God-given, that complement one another. The problem is, is that those terms were invented because we had to defend the truth. They're not actual biblical terms. Uh, lordship salvation. We call it salvation. But that term had to be invented to defend the truth. And all of a sudden you get to a point in history where the doctrine of justification is being challenged. And so now you had to begin to elevate our understanding. Augustine then, 354 to 430 is when he lived. He had an enormous influence on soteriology. He is the first major theologian of church history that we know of to seriously address the issue of justification. And here's what he held. He held that the verb to justify means to make righteous. And so justification, thus the name, means about being made just. That you, you, have, uh, you have been put in the right place. Uh, what do you call it in a Word document when you move your cursor one way or another? It's to justify it, right? It's to put it in the correct place. Justification, he said, is all-embracing and includes both the event of justification and the process of justification. Now, we're going to show that Augustine was in error on that, the idea of the process. There is no process of justification. And then he held that man's righteousness and justification is inherent rather than imputed. We would also uh, deny that. That in other words, once you have come to faith in Christ, you are actually righteous rather than sharing imputed righteousness with Christ. We'll make that distinction here shortly. Then there's the medieval period. The predominant view of justification in the medieval era was this. And I'm reading from a, um, a uh, theology by a guy named McGrath. He says, quote, justification refers not merely to the beginning of the Christian life, but also to its continuation and ultimate perfection in which the Christian is made righteous in the sight of God and the sight of men through a fundamental change in his nature and not merely his status. And so there's a problem with that. He said through a fundamental change in his nature, not merely his status. The, the problem with this is that with that medieval understanding there's no distinction between justification and sanctification. They're, they're exactly the same thing. The distinction between justification and sanctification is what makes us reformed and makes us not Catholic. Now, just to be clear, if you read church history, um, there's, a, there's a misnomer that says that for a thousand years of church history, there were no true Christians and that the Roman Catholic Church uh, controlled the whole world. That's not the case. There were true believers, but it is true that the gospel was subdued um, very clearly. The Reformation exploded the gospel uh, in, in a brand new way. There are other views associated with the medieval era. Uh, <clears throat> the, the medieval believers, and, and there's a lot of debate as to when Roman Catholicism became heretical. It happened over time, but they began to... Uh, 
believe in something called the infusion of grace. The infusion of grace was a chain of events that led to justification. We would not hold to that. Uh, They said that justification consists in the remission of sins, that it involves a real change in its object, that, that something happens to us, that man has a positive role to play in his own justification. And there we start to go off track. And they would say that justification takes place within the sphere of the church and is particularly associated with the sacraments of baptism and penance. There we are, now we're full-blown Catholic. And so we would not hold to that. Then we get to the Reformation period. And according to McGrath, there were three main features that characterized the Protestant understanding of justification, 1530 to 1730, somewhere in there. First of all, justification is a forensic, that's just a theological word that means legal, a a legal declaration, a forensic declaration that the Christian is declared righteous rather than it being the process by which he's made righteous. That's the break from the Catholic Church. I would say also the second main feature is that there's a deliberate distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification happens one time, sanctification is a process. And then they would say, during the reform time, the formal cause of justification, the cause of justification is the alien righteousness of Christ. Now, alien, I don't mean like people coming down from Mars or, or people coming north from, the, from Mexico. Uh, what we mean by alien is something completely, totally foreign to us. And the righteousness of Christ was said to be alien. In other words, we can't get it. But justification imputes the alien righteousness of Christ to mankind. Imputation, uh, not amputation, that's the opposite. Imputation is to give something or to credit something. Uh, Here's a good example of imputation. If I give a small child my debit card and I say go into that store and buy something and they buy something, I have imputed to them my ability to buy stuff. It's not their money, it's not anything they earned, but they're able to purchase it. So that's imputation. Key theologians in the Reformation period, Luther, Martin Luther, a guy named Melanchthon, uh, Zwingli, Bucer, Calvin, Beza, you can read this in church history um, references. The most significant contribution to the development of the early Reformed doctrine of justification, though, was by John Calvin. Now, people say, well, are you a Calvinist? And my answer is always, no, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a Biblicist. A Biblicist means that I believe what the Bible says. I happen to agree with the fact that John Calvin also believed what the Bible says. And he was a brilliant theologian. It was Calvin who made very explicit the concept of legal justification. He, he wrote about this extensively. He also connected justification to Christology, to Christ, and he understood both justification and sanctification as inseparable but distinct. They're they're joined at the hip, but they are different, and they both come from Christ. McGrath says this, Calvin may be regarded as establishing the framework within which subsequent discussion of justification within the Reform School would proceed. So he, he set a great groundwork and, and not by doing anything other than just studying the scriptures. Calvin didn't sit around thinking about theology. He studied the scriptures and wrote what they said. McGrath says that the Reformed school, after Calvin made um, predestination, not justification, the central uh, 
doctrine of the Reformed Church. And so, so Calvin may be known for the doctrine of election and predestination, but the thing he really contributed early on was the, to the doctrine of justification. And that's very important. Now, I said that was about 1530 to 1730. Then you get to the modern period, beginning in the mid-1700s, and now you're, you're getting to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was characterized by a new emphasis on the autonomy of mankind, that we're our own moral agent. And now there began to be a hostility toward the idea of original sin, a hostility toward the idea of, of uh, Adam's sin being passed down to us. Now you have the concept of deism. Uh, deism rejected the concept of original sin and any elements of Christianity that, were, uh, that, that they felt were at variance with reason. Uh, meaning, if I, as a mere human being, think that something in the Bible doesn't make sense, then the Bible must be wrong. That's like a five-year-old saying to his parents, you know, I don't agree with the, the fact that you use a Visa instead of MasterCard, and I really, I really disagree with that. What, what do the parents say to a five-year-old? Go clean your room and be quiet. And so the Enlightenment said, we stand in judgment over the Bible. Let me put it this way. The Bible stands in judgment over us, but the Enlightenment said, no, I will stand in judgment over the, over the Scriptures. So the irony is, is this the absolute opposite of Enlightenment, right? It's in darkenment, I guess you might call it. I just made that up. And what was the result of these critiques? Critiquing Christianity, critiquing the doctrine of justification by about 1780, basically the doctrine of justification had been destroyed. Um, not in small pockets of orthodoxy, but, but in, general, uh, in general terms across all of the learned men of God in seminaries and in places of higher learning, they began to reject the doctrine of justification. By the way, this leads to liberalism in Germany and in Europe, which eventually leads to a denigration of mankind, which eventually leads to uh, the history of Germany in the 20th century. So you can, you can trace that history on your own with some other resources. And in fact, the doctrine of justification was just so put down and destroyed, it seemed like that it wasn't going to be restored. So that's kind of the history what I'd like to do now is just, just hit some high points about the doctrine of justification and in light of these various views of justification in church history, what, what do we have to do? We have to go to the Bible. We have to just see what the Bible says. So let's just start very basically now that we've done that, that brief history. Just a couple of definitions here. First, um, I, this is my definition of justification. God pardons all of our sins receives us as declared righteous, that's an important word, receives us as declared righteous by virtue of unity with Christ. Um, I think the unity with Christ is a big, giant issue. That is why we may be declared righteous, because we're identified with Christ. Um, that, that's the symbolism of baptism. We're, we're, we're baptized into his death, baptized into his resurrection. And then Demarest, uh, Bruce Demarest, gives this definition. Quote, we define justification as God's gracious legal verdict in respect of those who believe in Christ, forgiving their sins and declaring them righteous through the imputation, there's that word again, the crediting of Christ's righteousness. We define justification as God's gracious legal verdict in respect of those who believe in Christ, forgiving their sins and declaring them righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now let's go 
for a moment to what justification is not. Justification is not an infusing of righteousness. If you were here yesterday for Dr. Scott's um, seminar, he talked about various views of sanctification. Um, the first one was the Wesleyan view. The Wesleyan view says that you're, you're kind of bumping along with a bunch of sins and all of a sudden you have what the Wesleyans call a second work of grace. And this is sensitive to me. I was raised in the Wesleyan tradition. And so everyone was looking for the second work of grace. And you hung your head if you hadn't had it yet. And the people who did have it looked down on you. And suddenly you bump up and you're now righteous. And you, are, uh, you saw the chart. You're, you're up here and you don't sin anymore. You make a lot of mistakes, but you don't sin. And then he showed us the, the Keswick view that says you, you bump along here. It's sort of another version of uh, the Wesleyan view, you bump along, kind of really just barely making it, then you suddenly jump up and you bump along at a higher level. Well, what would we say? It is not an infusing of righteousness. Justification, this is Milton Erickson in his theology, he says justification is a forensic act, remember that word means legal, a, a forensic act imputing the righteousness of Christ to the believer. It is not an actual infusing of holiness into the individual. It is a matter of declaring the person righteous as a judge does in acquitting the accused. He goes on to say, it is not the actual making righteous of a person. It's not a matter of making the person righteous or altering his or her actual spiritual condition. The the person is declared righteous, not actually made righteous in his or her being. So, in other words, when you get saved, you are credited with righteousness. You don't become righteous. That will happen later. Uh, as Stuart Scott said yesterday, that we do believe in, in that view of jumping up to sanctification. It happens at your death. And you make that jump at that point. It is also not God announcing that sinners are something that they're not. The Bible doesn't teach that believers are inherently or experientially righteous when they're not. And so we, we would then uh, push back against those wrong views of sanctification, of, of living a godly life. Instead, it teaches that Christ's righteousness has been imputed, it's been credited to the account of the believing sinner. Now, this is important. It is not a process. It's not a process. Justification happens once, and it takes place immediately at belief. It's not a process based on continual faith and continual works. That is the key difference between Roman Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity. Roman Catholicism tells you that you're rolling the dice with your good works and you are working on your justification. The irony is is that to work on your justification is a contradiction in terms. Justification is not something you can do. So this is the glory and the joy of the doctrine of justification that you are credited with the righteousness of Christ once and it goes on for all eternity. You will always be credited with the righteousness of Christ. Um, Number four. It is not something that can be lost. It's not something that can be lost. I, <clears throat> once I began to understand the, the idea of what some call eternal security or assurance of salvation, the permanence of our salvation, my assumption was, and I heard a lot of sermons about this, my assumption was that somehow God flips this switch in us that keeps us saved. And it's sort of like, uh, like the, the Energizer Bunny. You just, you just wind it up and it just keeps going and going. I don't see that in Scripture. What I see is the active work of Christ to keep you saved. That's why he intercedes at the, at the Father's right hand. 
to keep you in, in the faith. I, I can't prove that fully, but I would rather give God all the credit for my justification remaining the same. But we also attribute that to the character of God. Once God declares somebody righteous, he doesn't ever undo that because it's his character to not change his mind. A fifth thing it's not is it cannot increase or decrease. You cannot become more justified. You cannot become less justified. You are simply justified. That, that would be like a judge saying at, at your verdict, saying you're 90% guilty or you're 90% innocent. Well, what does that mean? Well, you're going to do one-tenth of your jail time. No, you're either guilty or you're innocent. And before the Lord, you were declared innocent. You're declared righteous um, or declared to have the righteousness of Christ. We would also say it is not the same thing as sanctification. Justification and sanctification are closely related, but they're not the same thing. Now, just to, just to kind of tell you the overlap, sanctification, we'll talk about this some later in the, in the worship service, there, there's three parts to this, and we did this yesterday, and I won't review all of it, but the, the first part of sanctification we would call positional sanctification. You remember, sanctification is the idea of, of being made holy, being set apart, being reserved, being plucked from being over here to over here, to, for, to, from going from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's God reserving you, the reserved seats of heaven, so to speak. You have that position. That is not the same as justification. Justification is your legal standing before God. However, your justification and the first part of sanctification, they're not the same thing, but they happen at the same time, if, if that makes sense. Justification is the purchase of the ticket to heaven, and uh, <clears throat> sanctification is the fact that you have a seat reserved with that ticket, if I could be really, really just base about it. So they happen at the same time, the first part of sanctification um, and justification, but they're not the same thing. Very clearly not the same thing. Because we would say sanctification begins a process of Christ-likeness. Justification instantly accomplishes your right standing before God. That's the joy of sanctification and what we're going to talk about later this morning, self-confrontation. You're not confronting your sin in order to be justified. You're confronting your sin because you love Christ and have been justified. You have been justified, and so you work on your sanctification out of love. So those are some things that justification is not. All right, you're going to take a breath. I know we're doing a lot. Let's look at justification in the Old Testament. We're just going to ping pong a few verses here. Job 25, 4. He asks the key question, how then can a man be just with God? That's the question we have to answer. Genesis 15, 6. Then he believed, this is, this is speaking of Abraham, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned, and the ESV credited it to him as righteousness. We could say imputed it to him as righteousness. That is justification. Genesis 15.6 is foundational for this doctrine. Um, the New Testament quotes or paraphrases Genesis 15.6 five times. And I think I put the, the references up there for you if you're interested in those. It means to count something, to impute something. By the way, side note here, uh, it's taken a while, but we got to our first one. People ask the question, how is it that Old Testament saints can be saved before Christ? They are saved based on the fact that Christ will pay for their sins. 
Their righteousness is credited to them. How is it the New Testament saints are saved? Based on the fact that Christ has died for our sins. And so all salvation is based in Christ. It's based on the blood of Christ. It just depends on whether you came before Christ or after. Salvation is not different in the Old and the New Testament. It is the same. Righteousness. The idea of crediting or reckoning righteousness. It refers to uh, being conformed to the nature and to the will of God. That Abraham was, was credited with having the nature and, the will, and being in the will of God. It means to conform to a given norm. It means to be righteous. It means to be just. It means to be vindicated, to be acquitted, to be declared to be in the right. And so I, we want to be very, very clear. And this is a great way to share the gospel as well. If you will remember that the gospel has to do with a legal standing before God, instead of trying to say, come to faith in Christ so that your life can be better, you can't make that guarantee. How would you share the gospel with the thief on the cross? You don't say, come to faith in Christ so that your life can be better. You say, come to faith in Christ so that your legal standing before God may be changed, so that he may view you as righteous. This is a great way. The doctrine of justification, in my mind, is the best way to share the gospel with a homosexual, with anybody who thinks you're going to make that one big sin the issue. You don't make that one big sin the issue. All their sin is the issue. Would you like to be declared righteous before God? That's, that's the gospel, being declared righteous. Then you have Psalm 32, 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so there's a blessing of being having righteousness imputed to you. Paul mentions this text in Romans 4, 6 through 8, that those who are sinners can find their sins forgiven and find them covered by the Lord. As for those who find forgiveness in the Lord, sin isn't counted against them. It's not reckoned against them. And that's a, that's a great concept when you're sharing the gospel. Look, have you sinned once or twice? Yes, I have. James 2.10 says that's enough to condemn you to hell for all eternity because God is righteous and you're not. How would you like to have all of your sins not counted against you? That's justification. Demarest writes this, justification meets, means that through God's gracious action, the debt of iniquity is no longer reckoned to the sinner's account. Rather, in the act of justification, God lays the guilt and punishment of the world on His Son and so pronounces believers innocent and righteous in His sight. This gracious and justifying work of God is contingent upon sinners honestly acknowledging and confessing their sins. So there is an admission of guilt. There is um, repentance. The irony is that to be declared innocent, you have to say, I'm guilty. And so that, that is part and parcel of the gospel. Milton Erickson summarizes the doctrine of justification in the Old Testament. He says, In the Old Testament, the concept of righteousness frequently appears in a forensic or judicial context. A righteous person is one who has been declared by a judge to be free from guilt. So that is the wonder of justification in the Old Testament. And of course, you would expect it in the New Testament. And so we'll just kind of hit a few little high points here. Um, the Greek verb that corresponds to the, the Hebrew idea of uh, righteousness or justification, it means to acquit, it means to declare righteous, it means to, to again, justify. 
The verb form occurs 40 times in the New Testament. The adjective form occurs 80 times, which means to be upright, to be righteous, to be in the right relationship. And the noun form occurs 90 times. So whatever 40 plus 80 plus 90 is, that's how often the New Testament speaks of justification. And so you see this this great crescendo. Now that Christ has come, that that is the main doctrine that's preached. Jesus preached the doctrine of justification in very familiar form. Now, I'm just going to read to you a little parable from Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There's the point. And treated others with contempt. Isn't that ironic? When you trust yourself for righteousness, you look down on everybody else. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There is the great paradox of the gospel. If you exalt yourself, you will be destroyed. If you destroy yourself, so to speak, you will be exalted. Verse 9 of that passage in Luke 18, it says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's the key issue. That's the crux of the issue. The Pharisee thought he was righteous based on the works that he did. And the tax collector cried out to God for mercy. And because of this, he was considered righteous. He was credited with righteousness. And the idea here, by the way, the the verb be merciful, to me, it suggests the idea that propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, that's in the background of justification. Separate doctrine, but they're very, very related. In verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That is the same root word that the doctrine of justification is built on. Justified rather than the other. Then you have justification according to Paul. I'll just read you a few texts here very briefly. Romans 3, 20 through 28. You can look those up on your own. Romans 4, 5 through 8. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons or credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And he's he's quoting Psalm 32 there. Justification comes through faith alone, not works. If anybody ever asks you, what was the Reformation about? I know you get that question all the time. If anybody ever asks you, what is the Reformation about? Justification is by faith alone, not by works. That's the entirety of the Reformation. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, this is a huge, huge deal here. He asks this question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Then he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now, why why do those two go together? They go together for this reason. If 
anybody could go to God the Father and point at you and say, that person needs to be condemned for his sin. If anybody had the right to do that, who would it be? It would be Jesus, because he's the one who died instead of you. So he has the most right of any, any being to condemn you. But Romans eight thirty three and 34 says, if Jesus won't condemn you, then nobody else is going to either. That's a great, tremendous truth. And we see there the intercession of Christ right put together with the doctrine of justification. Now this passage is evidence that justification is a legal act, a forensic act. Justifies and condemns, those are are parallel. If condemns is forensic or legal, then justifies is as well. What that means is that in Christ, God reconciled the world to Himself. He didn't count their trespasses against them in entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians 5.19. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the classic verse on justification. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is sometimes called the great exchange. That the righteousness of Christ was traded for your unrighteousness. The death of Christ was traded for your life. The perfect life of Christ was traded for your imperfect life. Justification is the trade. Because that answers the question, well, how can God just declare you righteous? He, he must not be just if your sin is not dealt with. He does deal with your sin. He deals with it in Christ. I, I, can you wrap your mind around that phrase? That he made Christ to be sin. I can't wrap my mind around that. He didn't make Christ sinful. Christ is never sinful, but he made him to be sin, the representation of all of your sin, and it was switched so that uh, you are the prodigal son. And when you go running home to your father at your death, there will be nothing but open arms because in you he sees his son and he sees Christ. You might also note Galatians 2 16, Galatians 3, 11. Book of Galatians is great on the doctrine of justification. Well, let's do some implications. If you were here yesterday, your listening ears are well attuned already, so I, I have faith that you can keep doing this. Some implications. The result is forgiveness of sins. That's pretty big. Acts 13, 38 and 39, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, you could try and try and try your whole life as a Jew to keep the law, but you didn't have the power to keep the law because you didn't have the Spirit of God. You weren't able to keep the law perfectly, therefore you could not be justified. It had to be by grace. It had to be imputed to you. We would also see that restoration of divine favor is one of the implications. The restoration of divine favor. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Now, this is very important. If we go back to the judicial scene, the scene of a judge, and maybe you've seen a scene like this in the movies or even seen it in person, where a judge because of lack of evidence, is forced to let somebody go. And he says, okay, you are acquitted, but get out of my sight. I never want to see you in my courtroom again. That's not the case here. 
This is the judge saying, you are declared innocent because my son has given his life in your place and has died for you. And now you have my favor. You have my smile. I'm not telling you get out of my courtroom. In fact, there's one more implication, peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does the judge declare you uh, righteous or impute the righteousness of his son to you, not only does he give you his smile with his divine favor, he says, I have this huge mansion and I would like to provide for you and I would like for you to live with me forever and ever and ever and you're going to be my friend. You're going to be my child. That's huge. Justification isn't just, whew, barely made it through, through judgment. It's becoming a part of the family of God. It's going all the way to reconciliation. I want to be really clear about this, and so I listed quite a few verses there, that faith is the means of justification. And I told you at the end that I'll, I'll show you the difference between Orthodox Christianity and the Roman Catholic religion. Sometimes I forget and call them a church. They're not a church. Just a few verses here. Romans 1.17 For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 3.28 For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.30, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Romans 5.1, again, therefore having been justified by faith, notice the past tense, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, righteousness based on faith. Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, in Christ Jesus, even as we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And by the way, this is not God changing his mind. The law of Moses was never one time for one second designed to impart salvation. It never had that purpose. It never had that ability. Galatians 3.11, Now that no one is justified by the law, before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the second time that Paul quotes uh, Habakkuk 2.4. Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Philippians 3.9, And may be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Are you catching a little bit of theme, sort of barely noticeable there. Hebrews 11, the whole chapter, but just have a verse 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Why was Noah and his family the only people on the ark? According to Peter, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. and He had quite a few decades to let everybody know why he was building a giant boat in a landlocked country, that the judgment of God was coming. Noah believed God. He had faith that judgment was coming and that he needed grace. That's faith. Now, I read all those passages to you, and I told you we'd do this here near the end. 
I want to compare that with what the Roman Catholic Council of Trent declared. Listen carefully because the, the words are condensed here. This is canon number 12. Quote, If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified. Now stop right there. That much is totally orthodox. If anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, the rest of the phrase is, let him be accursed. You cannot be one with the Roman Catholic religion. They are exactly on the opposite end of this. It is not a, it is not a let's agree to disagree. One belief leads you to heaven, the other one leads you to hell. It's a pretty eternal difference. It, it's not just that, that, well, hey, let's just all try to get along. It's according to their doctrine, and don't believe what you see in the news about the Pope and, and the Catholic Church saying, hey, everybody, are, we're, we're all brothers and sisters in this world. They don't believe that according to their own writings. They believe you should be accursed by God because you believe justification is by faith alone. Why is that so important to them? Because as long as justification is by works, they can tell you what works to do, which means they exert control over you. They exert financial control. They exert life control. Why is the Roman Catholic religion always so well-funded? Because the rich people are trying to be justified. And they're writing checks like crazy. Then they ever drive you nuts to drive by a, a, a Catholic uh, building and you just go, that's like a $20 million building. Why is that? Because they've got this chokehold and they have deceived so many. What does it cost to come to faith in Christ? Nothing for you. It costs Christ everything. I want to do one last thing because we want to be very clear. What is the foundation? What is the basis? Why is it that God justifies you? Why is it that you can walk through your life and if you're 25 years old, you don't think about this as much, but if you're 85 years old, you think about this more. Why is it that you can take your last breath, your heart can beat for the last time and the last thing you do on this earth is to smile? Knowing you're justified. Why do you have that confidence? What's the basis? What's the foundation? There are two things that you should imprint in your mind as the basis for justification. These won't be a surprise to you. It's two things. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. At the end of your life, and you are pondering the things of the Lord, think on the death of Christ. Think on the resurrection of Christ. Listen. Romans 3, 24 through 26. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Let me do that last phrase. So that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. What is it at the cross that is God the Father showing his justice? It's that he poured his fury and his wrath all on Christ, because God is just, and not one sin that has ever been committed in all time will ever go unpunished. Not one. Sins will either be punished in hell, for the unbeliever, or they were punished in Christ at the cross because God is just. 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. What does that mean? It means that because God has poured the fury of his wrath on on Christ in justice and justice has been served, every one of your sins has been paid for, he may now justify you. The, The set of sermons that probably led to my salvation were five sermons in Romans, the entire book of Romans in five sermons by a guy named Dr. Marvin Rosenthal, a a Messianic Jew. And he said that the right hand of God's justice was flying at you and the left hand of His grace stopped it and directed that blow to Christ instead. So you have grace and you have justice all mixed in beautifully together. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We're justified by His blood. That's the basis. Romans five eighteen and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, meaning all who will be saved. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's speaking of Adam, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then once again, can't read this too many times, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, that's the cross, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think if you've talked or thought about the doctrine of justification at any level, you associate justification with the death of Christ. Less frequently do we associate justification, though, with the resurrection of Christ. Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why is this important? Remember that justification involves the fact that sin has been paid for. Why is death for the unbeliever forever? Because their sin is never paid for. Why was death for Christ temporary? Because he made the payment in full. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that full payment has been made. There's no more payment to be made. The resurrection of Christ is the only valid result of a perfectly sinless man dying as if he were accursed. It's the only valid result of us being identified with Christ's righteousness that we too will be raised as he was. You see, the resurrection of Christ proves that your justification is complete. It's done. It's finished. There's no more, uh, there's no more condemnation. The book of Hebrews says that Christ died once for all. And so that is huge. So what do you, what do you want to think about when you think about justification? If I could just take a little deviation for a minute since I have three extra minutes. When we talked about the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration says that the Holy Spirit unbeknownst to you, unasked for by you, unaltered by you, unaffected by you, the Holy Spirit, at exactly the time God the Father ordained from before the foundation of the world, He regenerated your heart, which is an act of opening your spiritual eyes, unstopping your spiritual ears, opening your spiritual heart to see Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of seeing uh, the face of Christ. The glory of God in Christ. And so in the doctrine of regeneration, he opens your eyes to Christ. And, and, and at that moment, he gives you a beautiful gift that Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that is the gift of faith. No one has generated faith on their own. No one came to have faith in Christ based on an intellectual decision. 
were darkened in our understanding. First Corinthians 2 is very clear about this. You, you couldn't understand if you tried. And the harder you try, the darker the truth seems to become. But the Holy Spirit regenerated you. He gave you the gift of faith. And what happened when you had the gift of faith? You, you, that was when you had this dawning realization and you weren't even sure where it came from, but it came from God that I am a sinner. I have sinned against a holy God and I need help. I need grace. I need mercy. And you heard the word of God. You heard the, the gospel that says that mercy is available. Grace is available. It's available because God poured his judgment for sin on Christ instead of on you. And you may ask humbly for that payment to be applied to you. And you asked humbly and you, you confessed to the Lord. You repented. I want to turn away from my sin. I want to turn to Christ. And at that moment, you were justified. And it's forever. Yeah, wrap your minds around this. If you're over 50, can you remember being five? It's a little iffy, isn't it? You know, maybe something terrible like, a, you know, something ran over your foot. You can remember those traumatic events. That's just 45 years. Will you, in the providence of God and in the glory of God, 10 trillion years from now, remember that God justified you? Yes, you will. And you realize that 10 quadrillion years from now, I, can't even, I don't even know how many zeros that is. Your justification is still good and it always will be. This is huge. Isn't that better than roll the dice, keep doing good works and hope that you're justified? So much better. So I hope that the doctrine of justification, you think about faith, you think about the death of Christ, think about the resurrection of Christ. And because of the death of Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ, you can know that in heaven, the words you will hear will be welcome. There will be no judgment because judgment has already been poured out. And we could talk about this all day. Justification is glorious. It is, and I hope it's something you thank the Lord for. I mean, you ever, you ever, get, a, you, you ever get pulled over by a highway patrolman? I may or may not have a real experience with this. And, and, and he comes to your window and you're going, oh, what did I do wrong? And you feel so guilty and you're just confessing sin. Lord, I yelled at my wife last night and all kinds of stuff. And he comes up and he says, just wanted you to know that the license plate on the back of your car is falling off. Wanted to help you out there. And you're just like, oh, that feeling of, of relief. Multiply that times eternity. The feeling of relief that every one of your sins has been erased and replaced with the righteousness of Christ. I can't comprehend that. We can talk about it, but we can't comprehend it. That you will stand before God. You know, the book of Revelation chapter 20 says that for all sinners, there are books that are opened. If you still have a book, it's blank. There's nothing in it. The only book that concerns you is the, is the Lamb's book of life. And God opens it and says, there's your name. Welcome home. So I hope the doctrine of justification is, is not just a dry, dusty doctrine. It's the reason you're going to heaven. And so we're thankful for that. I've, I've got a couple of minutes. Does anybody want to ask any questions? I just told you everything I know about justification. But <clears throat> yes. <laughs> That's a great question. Was Noah saved even though he spent his last days as a drunk? Genesis chapter 6 says that Noah found favor with God. It's a Hebrew word that we would translate grace. 
So would you say that a believer in Christ who has been justified, who has a problem drinking at the end of his life, is he saved? I I would say yes. I I would also say that one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, we would be pretty surprised to go to heaven and find out, hey, where's Noah? Well, he's in hell. Oh, that's that's a twist. Um, Noah is a he is a gracious reminder of the grace of God so he found grace God found him good question what else this is like an ordination exam yes David oh you're saved by works and not by faith okay <clears throat> yeah absolutely So, first of all, you've heard all the scriptures we've gone through that that salvation is by faith alone, not by works. So, you want to pair that up with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is very clear that we are saved by, by faith, not by works. You have to look at the bigger picture of the book of James. The book of James is basically about the fact that our works after salvation demonstrate that we are justified. It demonstrates justification. So would we say that somebody who was six years old and walked down an aisle at a church camp and said, I want to be a Christian, and then for the next 50 years lived a completely godless life, would we call them justified? No. James would say, you're justified, meaning you prove your justification by the life you've lived. It's not earning your salvation, it's demonstrating that you are saved. Um, And so you're on that that road of sanctification. So you can't pull that one verse out and have it somehow stand up against uh, every other verse in the New Testament. And they're not at odds with one another at all. James is talking post-salvation. The proof of your faith, the proof of your justification is the fact that you want to please God. And you're you're eager to do those things. So that's how they go together. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, you're gonna, if you are going to pit them against each other, which we wouldn't do, but if you were, you know, James 2 is one little thing here. You have the rest of the New Testament just bowling it over. But James 2 goes right along with um, all the places where, you know, for example, Matthew 7, where Jesus warns that people at the judgment will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty works in your name? Didn't we do uh, churchy things? But they were never justified. They tried to do churchy things to earn justification. They didn't do good things because they were justified. So it's, it's a matter of which, line, which side of the line are you on. Does that make sense? Okay, great. What else? All right. Oh, one more. Yes, Teresa. The, oh, the all? Um, very simply, all in the New Testament doesn't always mean all. It can't because Jesus said some people will be in hell. Um, it leads, leads to life for all who believe. Um, it's the same problem with for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, what, what does the world mean? Well, there's, there's, there's different permutations of that. It's the same uh, issue we have with Israel. Remember our two circles when we've talked about Israel? You have the big circle which is everybody descended from Abraham. And then you have the smaller circle, true Israel, everybody descended from Abraham who is saved by faith in Christ. That's true Israel. So um, every single person who will be saved is by faith. So that, that's how we would define it. There's, there's longer answers to that, but... Right, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, I could answer those three questions. Before I get stumped, we're gonna pray, so...
Lord, it's our hope and our, our desire that this beautiful doctrine, which really we've just scratched the surface and probably not even done a very good job, but we, we know enough. We know enough to know that justification is stunning. That it causes humility. It causes worship. It causes us to give you all glory and to give no glory to ourselves. Oh Lord, how thankful we are that before the foundation of the world, you made a plan to justify some, graciously choosing some for salvation when none deserve salvation. We give you all the glory, we give you all the praise, for we deserve none of it. Thank you for the death of Christ, which is provided for our justification. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ, which is proven and provided for our justification. Thank you for the faith that you gave us through regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We are in awe of your grace and mercy and we will spend eternity giving you thanks. We pray in Christ's name, amen.